Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. So welcome to the Regulatory Policy Seminar. I'm Joe Aldi, the faculty chair of the Regulatory Policy Program. We are thrilled to have with us today our old friend Karen Mills, who is a senior fellow at HBS and has worn many Harvard hats over the years. She holds uh, both a bachelor's degree from the college and an MBA from HBS. She was previously a senior fellow here at the Mosavar Rahmani Center for Business and Government. She previously served as the vice chair of the Board of Overseers. And uh, she is here today drawing off of extensive experience in both the policy world and in the private sector to talk about her new book, FinTech, Small Business and the American Dream. Karen served as the administrator of the Small Business Administration uh, for the first term in the Obama administration. Uh, before that, she'd actually served in, uh, uh, as the chair of Maine's Council on Competitiveness and the Economy. So she has this experience from both the federal and state uh, policy worlds and has extensive experience in private equity uh, before she uh, took on some of these public sector uh, positions. Uh, the book published by Palgrave uh, Macmillan is out today, at least in terms of the Boston launch, so we're thrilled that we're able to, to uh, provide a venue for this. Um, Karen will provide some opening remarks, and once she's done with her presentation, we will then have what I expect will be a very lively uh, conversation and Q&A with Karen. We wrap at 1 o'clock. We'll stop a couple minutes before that uh, to uh, conduct the raffle. Uh, so I think I'm in charge of pulling the names out, and Karen will gladly uh, sign uh, the books for the winning uh, recipients. So with that, uh, Karen, welcome back to the Regulatory Policy Seminar. Thank you very much, Joe. And uh, I'm delighted to be here. This actually is the official launch. We count the official launch the day the books are available on Amazon. Right? <laughs> so that is today. Um, and uh, it's also the 10 year anniversary this week of when I was confirmed by the Senate for um, working in Washington for President Obama. And I just want to mention unanimously confirmed. So I'm making a lot of that these days. Um, we're going to talk about FinTech. We're going to talk about the small business lending aspect of it. But I'm going to focus a lot of the remarks on the regulatory piece because that's what you all are here for. I will say that I opened uh, Launch Week in New York the last two days, and I would say, you know, I have two chapters, sorry, on regulation. And um, here I'm saying, I have two chapters on regulation, and we're going to talk about it. Because I actually think it's one of the most important and difficult issues that the book raises. But I'm going to start... Um, a little bit with the 30,000-foot scene of what this dynamic technology change is going to bring and why we care about certain regulatory issues and what precisely um, they might influence in the competitive context. So as I said, uh, story starts, and actually the impetus for this book starts at this time 10 years ago, because if you remember, 
Ten years ago, we were in the midst of one of the most difficult recessions we have seen in this country. And in this economic recession, it was um, devastating for small businesses. It was a great job. I became the head of the SBA and a member of the president's cabinet. And this is early on. You can see because the president doesn't have as much gray hair. <laughs> it was a great job. I got to fly around with him on Air Force One. And this is in the Roosevelt Room. I forget what I'm saying to him, but he looks really mad. Whatever it is. But I was the person in charge of all of America's small businesses and entrepreneurs. And at the time I took the job, credit markets had frozen for a whole set of reasons, actually, around regulatory policy. Um, banks had gotten overextended. They had gotten a lot of mortgages on their books. The mortgages had gone bad. They had no more room on their balance sheets. They pulled back on credit, particularly small business credit. Lending markets essentially froze. And small businesses got their credit lines pulled, even if they didn't have trouble. Many of them did have trouble and went out of business. The first quarter that I was in office, we lost 1.8 million small business jobs. And that red line is small business jobs. The blue line is large business jobs. So this was extraordinarily difficult. In fact, we didn't even know how bad it was because we did not have a measure, and I'll come back to this, we were not collecting data on small business loan originations which is one of the things uh, that I put in Dodd-Frank that I think we want to come back to in terms of regulatory policy. So at this very moment, I came into the White House and I was a venture capitalist. Um, I thought my job was to solve the problem. I didn't understand politics in Washington. So I said, we have a crisis. My folks are falling like flies. We have to do something dramatic. And the president and Larry Summers, who was the head of the National Economic Council, uh, after some persuading, kind of at the top of my voice, allowed me to do uh, something pretty aggressive, which was to raise the SBA guarantee rates to 90% and eliminate all the fees. And the concern that Larry had was that we were going to get all the bad loans. And I was able to show him that nobody was lending and that if we started lending, we would actually get a much higher quality loan than we had been, and that's what happened. We got 1,000 banks back to SBA lending in six months. So it just shows what you can do in a moment of crisis. Um, even, and this was part of the ARA, the Recovery Act. And um, I call this the hockey stick that did happen. And as I went around the country, and I described this in the book, I began to meet business owners who said, you saved my business. And so this uh, imprinted on me the importance of access to capital to small businesses, because I saw what happened when it went away. Why was this so important? And why is it so difficult to get access to capital for small businesses? Well, first of all, half of the people who work in this country own or work for a small business. But there's what I call a political paradox, which is that even though small business is bipartisan and everyone says they're for them and small business is the backbone of the economy, nobody really seems to want to pass a lot of small business-focused legislation. Partly because in the macroeconomic models, 
small business just doesn't appear. You know, it's C plus I plus G. Consumers, investment, which is done by big businesses, government spending, where does small business appear? But it turns out they are very important, of course, in microeconomic activity, like they have half the jobs. They provide a path to opportunity and the American dream. And one of the things that I think uh, I want to talk about in this book is why small business, and particularly small business to access to credit, should not be the weak cousin to worrying about the consumer. If you look at why access to credit has traditionally had all these barriers and frictions been so difficult, there are two reasons. The first is information opacity. It's very hard to know what's going on inside a small business. Sometimes the small business owner themselves doesn't even know if they're making money. If I gave you 10 pieces of data, you could say whether any consumer should get a mortgage. If I give you 10 pieces of data on a small business, you'd still be saying, hmm, I'm not sure. So how do we solve this problem? The answer is that today's technology, the advances in data, the amount of information that is being brought to bear on this problem are going to significantly change the game for information opacity. The second issue is heterogeneity. All small businesses are different. So one of the things we did in the book is make a new categorization of small businesses. There are 30 million small businesses in this country. 24 million do not have employees. They're sole proprietorships. So if you think about policy, you have to think differently about those people from the gig economy. They may have their business as a side job or as their sole employment, which means, of course, they need health care. They need a whole set of activities they are not getting from their primary employment. And as you might guess, this segment is on the rise. There's also, of the 5.9 million that have employees, a very large number on Main Street. And once again, these tend to be forgotten in economic policy, car repair, dry cleaners, and a million suppliers. Just wrote a paper on the supply chain with Mercedes Delgado, who was at MIT, uh, and we quantified for the first time how big the supply chain economy is in this country. It's 42% of employment. So this is a really interesting new segment. When we hear about entrepreneurs, though, we're always thinking about these 200,000, this very small number of high-growth Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. This book does not talk about that. It talks about, doesn't talk about them because they look to the capital markets for equity and growth equity and maybe venture debt. I am talking about the large number of small businesses who look to banks, who look to debt in order to maintain and grow their businesses. And of course, all of these are different. So what you know about the dry cleaner might not apply to the automotive parts maker, making lending somewhat difficult. Luckily, as I said, we are at an inflection point. And actually is a true inflection point. Um, small business uh, fintech lending is just at the beginning of the innovation curve. And we're going to talk about uh, some projections, some uh, predictions I might make 
about what the future state might look like, but the truth is, it's up for grabs. So let me set the scene on that. And we can also talk about how regulation might be one of the biggest critical factors in how all this turns out. So the first phase uh, really started in 2010, went to about 2014, we call it the Wild West. A lot of businesses you may have heard of, like Lending Club, and Camp Capital and Funding Circle all came on the scene, and they did something really dramatic. They changed the way small businesses got their loan in terms of the customer experience. Traditionally, if you're a small business, you Xerox a pile of paperwork, you walk down the street to the bank, you hand it over to the loan officer, you go home and you wait for like three weeks or three months, and then you get like, no. And then you go down to the next bank and you hand over your paperwork. And it's a very painful process. The new FinTech said, fill out an application online. It'll take 30 minutes, an hour. And you'll have the money in your account tomorrow. Huge, huge change. Now, there were some issues with this. This is Fed. Uh, survey data, but online, which is the lightest blue, um, is a much easier application process, much quicker decision, but much more expensive. So people liked all the customer experience, did not like the price. And as a result, um, the traditional incumbents woke up and said, wait a minute, we are not going to get taken over. We are not going to see this market because we have some competitive advantage. The most important was customers. It is very hard to find a small business customer because they're busy running their business. So banks, JP Morgan, Chase, Citibank, they have a lot of customers. Fintechs found it very expensive and difficult. <coughs> The other thing that banks had was cheap capital from deposits. And this sets up one of the early issues in the regulatory front, which is why can't these people take deposits and be banks? Because banking is regulated. And as we'll see later, non-banks have no way to get a federal charter until recently. So the banks woke up. Uh, so the first thing that's happened is the Wild West was over, takeoff, I call that takeoff aborted, and there was a reset in the market. Something else occurred. Big tech showed up at small business land, particularly Amazon, Square, and PayPal. And why? Because they had a lot of data on the small businesses that were selling on their platforms. And they found it easier and easy and also um, appropriate for them to look at that data and say, you know, you're going to need some capital for inventory. Why don't we give it to you? And banks, the dinosaurs woke up and banks came back. So now you've got this kind of landscape. And as I said, it is kind of up for grabs. You've got the bank, the credit card companies. I spent yesterday at American Express. They're making a huge uh, push into this market. Small Business Saturday is their creation. 
Big tech, Apple just announced they're doing a credit card with Goldman Sachs Marcus. The fintechs have come back in with really impressive technology and products. And there's a new player, set of players here, which are, um, I'm going to call them infrastructure players. And this is about to be filled out. There's a lot of small nation players. We were at one yesterday called Enigma, which just gathers data. It's a data infrastructure play. And all of this, these data aggregators that you've heard of are going to be very, very important. Plaid is the most important one. It takes all of the data from financial institutions and puts it into a, uh, a workable set of, um, pulls it in through APIs and sends it out to those who buy it. So this is a big change, because this was all not possible five years ago. So let's look at what I mean by what's changed. The thing that changed this, the landscape here is technology, largely in the form of APIs. APIs that allow you to suck up a whole series of data um, and to um, make these data pipes that lead together of all kinds of information, bank accounts, credit cards, purchases, and lead, that lead together into a platform where you can create predictive algorithms and you can use artificial intelligence. So I say, if you think that artificial intelligence is going to first come uh, into your world in driverless cars, not so. It's going to first come into your life in financial services. <coughs> because it's here. And this, of course, is going to lead to a whole series of regulatory issues and questions. But what does this mean we can do for the products? It means that we can have much better lender insights in figuring out the information opacity, right? Are these businesses creditworthy? And we can do something else that I think is one of the most powerful um, uh, thoughts to come out of the book. We can do something for small business owners that they have never had before. Small business owners have very bumpy cash flows. J.P. Morgan Institute looked at a lot of data and said, on average, they have 26 days of cash buffer. <coughs> and restaurants have 19. So a late paying customer, a snowstorm, all kinds of things can put them in dire straits. And we see them fail all the time. What if they had a predictive dashboard that showed them their cash? What if that dashboard, well, I'll tell you the story. I, I call this small business utopia, and I was describing it to a young woman on Main Street in my hometown in Brunswick, Maine. And Main Street in Brunswick, Maine is spelled with an E. But she, she has a brew pub in Brunswick. And I start to describe this. And she said, wait a minute, let me tell you about my life. I go home at night. I open my laptop. I pull up my QuickBooks account. Then I pull up my bank account. Then I open my iPad. And I print up TurboTax. And then I open my phone. And I look at the weather. And then in my head, I am trying to predict my cash inflows and outflows over the next couple weeks to make sure I can pay my people and pay my taxes. And if, let's imagine for the moment, that that process was automated. Technology today 
exists. We're not looking at anything new to be invented. And what if that was in the hands of a small business owner and informed perhaps by the predictive nature of other businesses in the region or other businesses of the same type across the country? This could be game changing for small businesses. All right, now to the regulatory question. Let's imagine we have the dark, the black box. What are we worried about? And it turns out we're worried about a lot of things, as you all know. First of all, what's in the algorithm? And who gets to know? So should a small business owner know what's in the algorithms? Should a regulator know what's in the algorithms? How are they going to know? What happens if the algorithm does its job and learns who is creditworthy and ends up predicting some discriminatory uh, set of uh, yeses and noes? It is quite likely this will occur, heard in redlining. And if it occurs around a protected class, that's a problem. But how would we know? Because remember, we're not collecting this data. So collecting this data might be one avenue. And finally, should we be worrying about data monopolies? And what does particularly the European uh, and the open banking um, legislation in the UK tell us about how we would, should be thinking about the ownership of data. This is, I think, the regulatory discussion of the future. And I want to spend some time on it with you all um, because I think it's the most critical activity. Just to make sure everybody knows, in Europe and in the UK, the decision has been made that the customer owns their data. And in the UK, in open banking, the customer can require their bank to upload that data to any third-party provider in order to be part of those algorithms. We do not have open banking in the US. They have it in Australia. And it is uh, not quite yet on the regulatory agenda of Washington. But it will be shortly. I think what Washington is doing today is fighting last, the battles of the last war. Get rid of Dodd-Frank then community banks will come back because there's too much regulatory overhead. They should be worried about who owns the data and what happens in the black box. And one of the reasons why the US regulatory system is so difficult is that it is a spaghetti soup. So there are seven regulatory agencies at the federal level who govern banks and small business lending. And none of them have the ability to charter a non-bank to do small business. There are a number of other things that fall through the cracks, one of which is um, small businesses are not protected by the same laws as consumers. So it turns out the CFPB has done a whole series of laws that protect consumers and require transparency. And so if you borrow, so if I, if I want to get a truck for uh, me, then I get a Schumer box, I get all of the costs 
to buy to take a loan to buy this truck. If I want to buy a truck for my landscaping business, it doesn't apply. And I want to just uh, suggest that if we look at regulation going forward, why can we not um, have, have legislation that applies to small businesses? Now the argument, I'm just going to do a little test with you. Okay, you ready? This is, you got to participate in this. The test that I want to do with you is the reason we do not have this protection for small businesses is that small businesses are supposed to be smart and more financially savvy, and they're supposed to be able to figure out what's in the law. So let's just take product A here, and I'm going to tell you product A is $40,000 of a loan, and it costs the following. You're going to owe, you borrow $40,000, you're going to owe $52,000, and the company's going to take 10% of your debit or credit card receipts every day until this loan is paid off. What's the interest rate? I need a volunteer. I can cold call. Somebody. It's over 20%. Over 20%. <coughs> Anything else? This is over 20%. Over 20%. All right, so small businesses were interviewed in the focus group by the Federal Reserve. These were their answers. Usually I get more, you know, 28, 5, 30, uh, 9.8, 25. And of course this is a, a trick question because you can't actually calculate because you don't know how fast the loan is going to get paid down. But I run this usually with my MBAs. They ought to know, right? They'll be able to figure this out. I get all over the map. Uh, I run it with the alumni. I get all over the map. So my point is, can we just go back and protect some small businesses by making sure they get a disclosure box? We already do it for consumers. Second recommendation I really feel strongly about and talk about in the book is that we should be chartering non-banks at the federal level. And the OCC um, decided that they were going to do this. And they immediately got sued. Who sued them? The state banking regulators. So, I mean, to me, I, I said this at the state banking regulation uh, conference. Uh, I thought that was ridiculous. Um, because we want federal regulation. We do not want, for if we're driving innovation, we don't want 50 different regulatory regimes around what a non-bank can do. It's complicated enough already. So we'll see where, where, where that comes. It looks like Square is thinking about applying for an OCC license, but this is an area that uh, is fraught at the moment. We have these overlapping rules and jurisdictions, particularly with regard to what uh, people call third-party regulation, which is if you're a bank and you contract with a fintech, that fintech now becomes uh, incorporated in your banking regulatory environment, and they have to comply. Except for that the way that they have to comply as a third party is ruled by three different agencies, all of which have different rules. The Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC. So 
we need to clear up some of the overlapping rules and the conflicts. And in fact, this is a bipartisan point. I say it as does, this is in the Treasury report that was delivered last summer by this administration on FinTech. I put in Dodd-Frank, I know everybody hates Dodd-Frank, but um, I put another thing in Dodd-Frank way back in the day, which said we had to collect small business data. And we had to collect it for the reasons that we talked about earlier. We have to have some insight into where the gaps are. Where is their market failure? The CFPB, after five years, had not done this yet. It was their responsibility to collect it. Richard Cordray didn't get to it because he had too many consumer priorities, which annoyed me a lot, but that's the way it was. And now, <coughs> They wish they had, but it's a different thing. So I think this is business still to, to be done. And the last thing is I believe we should open, uh, adopt open banking principles and have customers own the data. So these are my suggestions for smart regulatory behavior. And just to come back to close on the landscape. If I had to go forward and predict, which I do in the book, who are the winners and losers? And under what criteria would you have winners and losers? Let me just take a stab at that with you all. I think there are three questions that are going to determine how this landscape comes out. The first is, who is trustworthy to the customers? And they're large banks, community banks, actually, credit card companies and big tech, I think all have standing. And I, don't, I, I do not count uh, community banks out. I actually think they could be very viable players in the future. Who provides the capital? You noticed that Apple did not use their balance sheet. They have a lot of money on their balance sheet. They're not a bank. So who has a balance sheet that they can lend on? And who takes deposits? And who can provide you capital? So that, once again, gives banks, I think, an advantage to come back and play. But this is the real determinant. Who creates the best technology solutions? And there are three areas to think about. And all of them depend on a regulatory solution. Data infrastructure. The data infrastructure I described, where data is sucked up with customer's permission into data aggregation platforms. And it's available for use from everyone, from your local community bank to J.P. Morgan Chase to the new FinTech to create intelligence for you. In, with an innovation lens, economic theory, this will produce the most innovation and the best customer products. It depends on no data monopolies and open banking. Who's going to produce the algorithms and the artificial intelligence? Well, big tech probably has the advantage there because there's more talent, there's more activity around this, and having just been inside some of the dinosaurs in the past couple weeks, um, they have a lot of intelligence. It's very hard for them to get this done fast, and it's going to take a lot of tests and iterate to figure out what these algorithms really are. Once again, 
regulation is going to make a big difference here. It's going to determine um, whether we get discrimination out of these and how much we can sort of keep our, our uh, <coughs> control of them. And here we might look to the UK and to Europe maybe for some guidance because they're asking the same question. And the last thing is the customer experience. How do we make sure the small business customer comes first? How do we make sure the customer experience, um, the pain points, the frictions, the barriers get recognized? So this is my view of the future. Um, in terms of the economics, I think what happens is that more creditworthy borrowers get loans. Now let me be clear, I do not mean everybody gets a loan. In the best of times, 50% of small businesses who apply for credit should not get it. Their business is not good. It's, and, and if they get a loan and they go down, they're just going to have to be in debt for that. So it does not mean that everybody gets a loan, which is sometimes what people are advocating for. It means that every creditworthy borrower gets a loan, and, and that you can distinguish at the margin where the gaps are. That there's a better customer experience, that there's more buffers for the unexpected uh, cash crunches, and that the products um, look like I've described, small business utopia with a dashboard. Maybe there's a button on that dashboard where you carry a cloud of credit with you, like you do on your credit card, and then you press the button, you can get $7,000 immediately. I also believe that products and services will get designed for small business, that people will recognize that this market is different and it's not uh, enough to have a warmed over consumer product in the small business market, and that there will even be small business focused banks. That's my view of uh, potentially the future. I just want to close on one point. I went in the book to sort of find out how long has this been going on? It turns out small business loans were first recorded 3,000 years ago. There are tablets from Mesopotamia. And they, this is actually serious, and um, the bread maker for the king got a loan, and the loan was quite reasonably priced, less than 6%, from uh, somebody who was acting as a banker. But it also recorded that there were fishermen who had loans of more than 20% a month. Uh, so the trend continues for um, pain and suffering in small business lending. And I guess what I would say now is that we're at a moment where technology could change all that. But it largely depends on getting the regulatory infrastructure right in order for these kinds of products and services to come forward. But if they do, I think we can fundamentally change this critical piece of our economy and also continue to provide the economic mobility for a whole set of people um, as they come and start small businesses and hopefully achieve the American dream. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. That was fantastic. Let me, let me ask the first question, and then I suspect there may be one or two or more from our audience here. Uh, one thing that struck me uh, when looking at your book and what you referenced early in your presentation is that 
difference between what, say, an, an individual or family may face if they want to get a loan to buy a house, in contrast to a small business where we're probably talking about similar-sized loans <coughs> or a home equity loan versus a loan for a small business, and the fact that for mortgages, it's a cookie-cutter process. And, and so it's straightforward for the banks, it's fairly straightforward, and it's still some burden for us to pull together our paperwork. But the contrast with the incredible heterogeneity across small businesses and the kinds of information that I, I can see why that information problem historically has made it more difficult, sort of more costly for the bank to lend because they need to get more information and, and the inability to distinguish the good versus the bad risk, they sort of shy away from that. And for the small business owner who, like the person you described, who goes home and has to look at all these different uh, 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 software packages and I, just to figure out, including the weather forecast, to figure out sort of what demand's going to look like for their business over the next couple of weeks, I can imagine like they just don't have the time. And so you can see how the innovation in the financial services here to be able to lower the cost for the supply, to lower the burden uh, for those who are demanding uh, the credit is really important. We've seen this innovation with the status quo regulatory framework. And I, I think you were being kind in describing the spaghetti. It, it, you know, the, the, the complexity there is quite stark. As you note in the book, this isn't how you decided if you started from scratch, but with Dodd-Frank we weren't politically starting from scratch. You have a few recommendations there. What do you think is really key? So we've had some innovation in the status quo framework, but we need to make some reforms in the regulatory framework. What's really critical in revising the regulatory landscape in order to drive the innovation we need so that it, you can really get the credit out to small businesses who are, who are at least that 50% who you want to be supplying credit to because you know they have a good business model, they've got this potential, they're good risk. But... You know, in the past, we haven't really been able to. What, what are sort of the key innovations, and what's what's the regulatory reforms that we need to really drive that kind of innovation? So this is a, you know, this is the subject that, I, that I'm working very hard on, and it's it's almost hard to know where to start. If you go, you know, if you gave me a wish list and said, you know, you've got one thing, you're going to go uh, to Congress, you're going to get a bipartisan group, and they're going to have this excitement about passing something. You know, there's going to be a small business regulatory reform uh, act, and we're going to clean up uh, this, and Mitch McConnell's going to make sure it gets through. What would you, what would you ask for today? And it's, it's a conundrum, um, because I think the most powerful uh, piece of regulatory oversight here really is um, data ownership open banking. I think that is a linchpin, and if we get it wrong, um, we will really damp down innovation. And if we just delay on it, the same thing, because innovators won't really know where they stand. Um, so, and, but I think it's the most, in some ways, it's the most complicated to start with, because it's not <coughs> on the agenda of Washington. I think the way it will come into our lives is it will come from Europe. And it will come from um, the UK, which has a much more organized regulatory system. And I just take one minute and tell you why I spent so long in the book on the UK regulatory system, uh, because it's such a great model for us. So I set out to find out why did we have a mess and they have this quite rational 
system. It turns out that George Osborne, so I went to, uh, many times to the UK in the, with the G8 when I was um, working for President Obama. And George Osborne was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it, he said that, he said to me, you know, there was not a day during the financial crisis where there wasn't something in my office, on my agenda, front of mind, about small businesses getting killed for lack of access to credit. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I was green with envy because, of course, I'd be in the White House, you know, saying, remember, remember the small business owner. I said, why was it so important to you? Why was it so high on your agenda? He said, we had four banks, and they were all in trouble. Four banks did all 85% of the small business lending in the UK, and they were all uh, in need of government bailout. They were all about to crash. So he <coughs> created two regulatory agencies, the Financial Control Authority being the most relevant, and he gave them what they call a competition remit. It means that they are supposed to both protect the consumers and small business owners, and they are supposed to create more competition for the four banks. So they have challenger banks, that's why the UK is the center of fintech. And you've heard of the, who's heard of the um, Innovation Sandbox? Ah, so they have an Innovation Sandbox, a, a regulatory <laughs> innovation sandbox where you as a fintech can go and get authorized to try out your product. And it's being copied. I, I think it's one of the most creative regulatory activities in the last five years. And it is being copied in, the, in uh, other places in Europe. It's being copied in, um, it was discussed by the OCC. So they started from this uh, pain point in the recession, but they got to a much more cohesive place. I think now they have open banking, they're going to figure it out. Uh, JP Morgan and Bank of America and everybody who operates overseas is going to figure it out. And I think those forces will bring it back here. Because it turns out it is not in the interest of Amazon to have a data monopoly uh, and JP Morgan Chase to have a data monopoly in this area. In some other areas maybe. But in this area, you need everybody else's information to make a decision. You need the bank account, you need the credit card account, you need the QuickBooks account. So you might have, you know, and there's four or five others that you need. You might have two or three of those, you might have one of those, but unless you've got them all, you're not going to be making a smarter credit decision. So everybody is going to have to find a way to share that information. And if it is shared in a secure and private way, which is a whole other set of regulatory issues, then it will be available not just to all these players, but also to innovators and fintechs. That's the way I'm hoping it will come out. Um, but the U.S. has to do something to clarify data ownership before that can Does it have to be through legislation, or could a regulator be a, an entrepreneur in this space and try to you know, they have some discretion under existing authorities try try to through through rulemaking. Well, I'd be curious. I I do not. I don't think the landscape is yet clear who would make that regulation. Which, given that they all compete, um, so they they would have to get together and agree <coughs> because they all regulate 
banks that open banking, so it might have to be legislation. Could, could some of these players, given that you, have, you mentioned some of the big banks that, of course, operate overseas, and Amazon cares about overseas, and the fintechs are there, could they do something voluntarily that would serve as a model and just say, here's how we think it should be done, and here's how we're doing it, and we want more to follow? And if you have a, you know, enough of the big players doing that, that starts to sort of drive the conversation in that way. Maybe it gets codified later in law, but you, you see something voluntary, or is it you know, because we're dealing with individual data, it, it's they're going to shy away from that because of well, privacy concerns. Well, I think that they are. Yes. Yeah, so here's my imagined view of, of it, um, and I've thought a lot about it. I think uh, I think they are. I know they're having these conversations right now um, about how to, and they want to avoid something called screen scraping. They want to avoid data just getting sort of amassed out. They they want secure APIs for their data. So they are, um, I think, inclined to get together and go in this direction. Here's the issue. The other data issue that's floating around for big tech is much more politically charged. Who owns your Facebook page? Do you own your Facebook page? Right? Is it secure? And my guess is that that will get Congress's first attention because it's more politically interesting. And what they do on that will, of course, uh, have repercussions for what happens to the nation. Speaking of you political interesting, uh, in your opinion, why hasn't uh, small business lending, small business issues been uh, more of an issue, more paramount to uh, both parties? And also, thanks for your service to our country and the administration. It's, a, it's always a mystery to me why my view of small business isn't everybody's view of small business. Um, in lending, when I ask this question, the consumer business is about three times as big as the small business uh, lending business. So that gets uh, some priority. It's easier. It will not long term be more profitable because margins will get squeezed. It's easier to do. Um, so I'm making the, this point back. But um, I think in general, so I went around to the economists in the Kennedy School and the economics department to ask this question about why don't economists um, think about small business in their equation? And in the macroeconomic models, they really just don't appear. And the reason is because they operate in the local economy. And um, if you want to drive the macroeconomy, you have to, you know, deal with basically trading businesses, not local businesses. I find that interesting, but not fully acceptable. But it was absolutely true that the hardest people that I had to do to convince that I needed a seat at the table on XYZ issue was uh, were the um, were the economists in the White House, because everybody else, the politicians. They would go home and they'd hear from their small businesses. So I don't have a great answer for you, but it's a, it's a, partly the economy. Did you have a follow-up? I, I did. Maybe, do you think it might be perhaps the economists their views is macro, but they don't understand the macro impact of these micro businesses, of these small businesses? So something to do with that. Yeah. And I spent the first chapter, and I spent a really long time on the first chapter, pretty much going through a series of arguments from the Microeconomists, and there are plenty of them. Um, everything from number of you know the basic size to the economic mobility. Um, 
you know, are some of the more powerful arguments. There's an argument around innovation, although it lies quite a bit in this very small number of very innovative companies. So, uh, so one of the answers is, I think, community lending. That's why, as you say, local, local economy um, generates more uh, loans. Uh, I, uh, I used to work for Bank of America, and uh, our threshold was we would lend to small businesses that made over a million dollars. Because the bank itself is so large, they could not concentrate in local markets. So, um, and during financial crisis, the top money that they received, uh, 10 out of 10 applications were denied. And uh, um, I read your book, and it's fascinating. And I think it, instead of innovation, maybe we can start thinking about renaissance, or rebirth of community banking. Because when large banks go into small communities, the fact is that small business lending goes down. And uh, I just wanted to, um, your answer to what do you think on Glass-Steagall, and just to reintroduce it in the Senate, because I remember when Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch, uh, we were concerned about small business lending, and we were told by executives that, you know, we have one balance sheet, we're just going to make money from land, from trading, that's it. You know, just forget about small business lending. So what's your intake on that? Um, let me take that in two pieces. First of all, I'm a believer in community banks. Uh, I think community banks can compete. I think they... Um, <coughs> I think this technology will actually allow community banks to come back into small business lending. Because what happened was, it turned out it's not profitable for them to make a loan under $100,000, $50,000. Because having a relationship banker spend all that time going through the underwriting process, it, it's too much. So 75% of small businesses want a loan less than $250,000 and 50% of them want a loan less than $100,000. So that's where the gap started to come in. Square's average loan today is $7,000. So why can Square make a $7,000 loan? Because they see everything that's going in and out of the small business, and they have collateral. They're going to take their money out of the first dollar that comes back, out of the receipts. So they're almost secure. And if you look at a community bank, and the part we imagined here, you could see if there was a small business dashboard, they could see immediately whether this business was creditworthy. The small business owner could know exactly what they were pre-approved for. You would still have the opportunity for that small business owner and the banker to have a conversation and have a relationship for all their banking needs and all their advisory needs. And it would almost make it cost-effective for that old-fashioned relationship uh, to be important and powerful. Small business owners have an insatiable need to have counseling about their business because it's just hard to know what to do next. And bankers have traditionally, in the old days, been that banker, that person until it got too expensive. This could actually reverse that process. Second, I, am, I, I don't think reversing Glass-Steagall has much to do with it. The consolidation occurs uh, when small community banks are getting picked up by regional community banks who don't make money off their balance sheet in the same way. The problem is structural that, um, you know, size matters, economies of scales matters. I think finding a way to make these online banks and these vertical banks and these community banks 
when we're specialized, more powerful, actually will uh, improve the local banking uh, activity. John. Um, can you go back to the slide that you talked about winners and losers? And the reason I'm asking is, having sat and watched and observed and participated in multiple changes in industries, um, the one before it that has the columns, the big banks, and then that one. So I, I just want to make sure I understand if you're, are you thinking that it will be kind of some group of those that will be the winners or the losers? And the reason I bring it up is if you go back and I sat through the computing industry, right? And one of the things you said is that they're, you're, they're building in open APIs. And that's huge because it starts to create standards across interfaces. And so, like in the computing industry, what happened was you could have the whole business model break apart, right? So you had somebody doing hardware, you had somebody doing operating systems, you had somebody doing applications onto that, and it was that restructuring. I saw it in the wireless industry, right, because the traditional communications companies thought, oh, I'll do all the applications in-house, but once you open up the APIs into the network, you get venture capitalists funding all of the small apps that then start driving the whole industry. And I would guess that this is going to change dramatically and that you're going to see partnering or breaking up of different parts of the business model. So it's not going to necessarily be one of these that will dominate, but people will start to control within certain parts of the value chain. And that's going to change the whole di dynamic, which then makes it really hard to think about actually how do you regulate that. Right? Because you've got large data sources, you've got data processing uh, through new technology, um, and then you've got the customer relationships, and each one of those companies has a different piece of that puzzle, and you don't necessarily have to have all of it to deliver a service. So how do you regulate if, that, if the industry goes that way? So on the competitive piece, I'll tell you what I think. It's worth, you know, <clears throat> well, I mean, um, I think there'll be a lot of successful players in here because of what you just described. So this would be right. like the analogy of the app. Uh, but there'll be a lot of successful infrastructure players providing um, products and services that work and connect and, and add value and are bought B2B by these other folks. Um, I don't think fintechs as lenders are that viable because they don't have enough of a balance sheet and their product's too expensive. So as soon as the product gets to be organized as a, in a commodity, one of the two other types of players will take over. And I think all these folks could win if they decide they want to. Amazon has so many opportunities that they have not doubled down on their business activity. But I will point out that Amazon and Square could dominate for retail players with whom they have a connection. They're not really going to be the lender of choice for the local, you know, contractor who's not using that, their device, not selling through their platform. So that might be the community bank. I think the credit card uh, folks, Capital One and American Express, absolutely have the possibility of being a platform player. And, you know, their real question is, can they get out of their own way? So, uh, for regulating it, 
I think you regulate in principles over all of it about data security, data ownership. Um, you know, if if you're going to hold deposits and be federally insured, you have to come within some set of banking compliance rules. And I think you just uh, there's a principle like entities are regulated in a like way. So if you're a deposit taker, you need to be regulated as a deposit taker, whether you're a fintech or you're not. Uh, thanks for your presentation. It's very impressive. Uh, fintech is a tool could be used by both big banks and also community banks. And previously, people tend to think that community banks could approach closer to small businesses so they can do small business lending more effectively. So my question is, by using FinTech, uh, could big banks do small business lending more effectively? When I was the head of the SBA, the question is can, you know, does FinTech give big banks an advantage that used to be held by small banks? Um, and that is one of the sort of fears that, that's out there. The fact is that quite a bit of small business lending is already done by large banks. So JP Morgan and Wells Fargo were the two largest small business lenders at the SBA, and that continues to this day. Um, and the question is, how does technology enable different kinds of products and services to meet different kinds of needs? And I think there will be a set of products and services that JP Morgan is quite well suited uh, to provide for lots of small businesses across all the United States, and that might be a very good thing. Small business owners might have other needs, though. They might like a local presence for various reasons. It used to be because they had to deposit their cash every day, so that's less of a case. But there are other services that local banks uh, provide. Um, they might know the real estate market. They might um, be advisors and counselors. So this is a moment where technology, I think, is going to be a plus and a minus for just about everyone. People say, oh, this will advantage this one and this will disadvantage. And I said, we are not really thinking about the customer here. If we think about the small business customer and their frictions and pain points, that allows you, I think, to more easily find ways that all kinds of people can benefit, uh, can use technology, create products and services that will win, and not necessarily, you know, dis completely disadvantage any of the other players on this board. The reason regulation is so important is that you want to set the playing field um, so that the rules are clear and that the customer gets protected. I think those are the, the guidelines. But I don't see a you know bright line about advantage, competitive advantage. Yes. Yes, I was wondering, how about some kind of like intermediary between like the fintechs and the very small businesses? Let me just give you an example. Nobody cares if you just mention Bank of America or anybody or great company. You're maybe you have an MBA somewhere. Nobody cares about the small businesses. Okay, just you know, example. When you have the small grocery stores, the, the down the street mom and pop business, you don't care about it. But you do care about Walmart, right? A lot. You're willing to lend a lot of money to Walmart. But if you agglomerate, is that the right word, agglomerate? 
the businesses together through like some kind of like a quote unquote wholesaler, somebody who represents those guys and can just be that intermediary and say, okay, I just, I, I just happen to represent a million small businesses. So now you have an interest in that, in that situation. What do you think of that alternative? So I think uh, the, the question is whether or not some kind of uh, gathering of small businesses gives them more power. And the question is, in what format? I think there are two separate formats. Uh, in the lending format, small businesses actually, um, I think, will have more and more power um, because now there's competition, right? And, um, and I'm not sure they need to gather together for size uh, to be visible. But politically, it's very hard for the voice of small business to be heard because even though they're part of all the politicians' constituencies, um, they don't seem to carry a lot of lobbying weight in Washington. So there's one organization, um, the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business Owners, in, in, which is very politically charged. It's a, it's a very uh, Republican-driven organization. And the Democrats have tried many, many ways to create a like organization without much political success. So I think it remains um, problematic uh, on the political sphere, and it would be an absolute fantastic thing. In the UK, there is something called the uh, FSB, the Federation of Small Businesses. It carries quite a bit of political weight. Um, and I used to say to them, I wish that I had you in the US. And they said to me, I wish we had the SBA in the UK, because they didn't have any loan guarantee uh, authority. So we're all a bit envious of, uh, of the other ones. But right now, I think, um, and I'll just close with this, and then maybe you can uh, pull some rabbits out that of the That sounds good. Um, I do think that there are two messages I want to leave you with. One is that, of course, the work that any of you are thinking about on this regulatory activity is critical at this moment. I think we are, um, even if you listen to Elizabeth Warren's uh, you know, comments and plans against the bank, we are really fighting the last war. And we will be um, disadvantaging a lot of our constituencies if we don't get our heads on straight for, for this next set of issues, which are even more complicated. You know, some of the last issues, like protecting small business owners with disclosure, you know, chartering non-bank, taking away the overlapping regulation, these are self-inflicted wounds. We can fix those easily. Figuring out how to make sure artificial intelligence algorithms don't discriminate, that's hard. That is our next job. Figuring out who owns your data, that's hard. That's our next job. So the more we can look to the future and organize our intellectual capacity to inform our regulators, to support uh, some potential solutions to this, the better we go forward. And the last thing I'd say is that I think we actually have a huge opportunity with technology in financial services. I think it is coming extremely fast um, with a lot of interesting potential um, for upside. If we get this right, 
a lot of the things that we think about in terms of access and opportunity, uh, inequality, paths to um, prosperity could be ameliorated. We could have the wind at our back. I just want to remind you about this thought about the American dream. My heritage is my grandfather came over, turn of the century with nothing. He started a business in his shoe shop, and in the top he put two machines. And he built a textile business that I worked in as uh, in college. And he, he made jobs for his family and his extended family and eventually hundreds and hundreds of people. And I believe in this. I think this is what this country's underpinning is all about. I think technology is going to give us an opportunity, if we get the regulation right, uh, to go forward and maybe enhance um, this as a path for more opportunity and access. So thank you for having me. Thank you very much.